From 11FS, this is InsureTech Insider News. Today we bring you InsureTech funding bounces back after global downturn. Lloyd's to end insurance coverage for state cyber attacks. And possibly quite a controversial topic, cyclists could be made to have registration plates and insurance. All this on today's show and more. Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 125. I'm John Bean. Today's show is a new show that will be talking about the most interesting happenings in insurance and insuretech from the past few weeks. Joining me today is my co-host, Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research at 11FS. How are you doing today, Benjamin? I'm really, really well. Always happy to be on InsureTech Insider. And I always seem to pick out a purple shirt because I so associate purple with InsureTech Insider that when I get dressed in the morning, I seem to just naturally pick out a purple shirt without even thinking about it. Well, you've, you've gone one step more than I have. I'm in my white t-shirt, but it's fantastic to have you in the studio with your post-holiday glow looking, <laughs> looking very healthy in person. Joining me not in person, but always a pleasure. We also have some amazing guests. And first up, Nikki Daniels, founder and director of Easy Insurance Solutions. Welcome back to InsureTech Inside, Nikki. And what can you tell us about Easy Insurance? We work across the entire insurance delivery space, so um, general insurance, not life and pensions. And we work with all the exciting new kids on the block and the older guard, looking at how best they can integrate and work with new partners, hence the InsureTech link. And we sort of do a bit of everything, really, because we're a bit long in the tooth now. Oh, well, fantastic to have you back in. Long in the tooth just means bags of experience. Oh, (laughs) so sweet. (laughs) (laughs) We're also joined by Andy Cohen, president of Snapsheet. Thanks for being here, Andy, and welcome to the show. Can you give our listeners a bit of a lowdown on Snapsheet? Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Snapsheet is an insure tech 100% 100% focused on uh, technolo- providing technology to support the claims experience. We work with co- approaching 150 different customers from large carriers, small carriers to MGAs, self-insured captives and TPAs, predominantly focused in the auto injury and property arenas. And uh, really excited to be here and thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for being here. Great. Well, thank you all for joining me. Now let's get on with the show. Story number one, InsureTech funding bounces back after global downturn. So according to the actuary, the global investment in the InsureTech sector bounced back in the second quarter of 2022, following a disappointing three months at the start of the year. Uh, A news report from Gallagher which shows that the InsureTech sector raised $2.41 billion in the second quarter, which was up 8.3%. Uh, greater than the first, the previous three months. The average deal size was up 18.3%, 22.11 million, or the deal numbers fell overall. So despite the total InsureTech investment bouncing back, it was still 50% below 2021's record-breaking second quarter. So I'm not sure that it's a, it's a bounce back. So I, I really want to just start with, where are we? Um, so in our recent podcast episode in 122, we discussed the credibility crisis startups were facing in the wake of some brutal drops in valuation. I'm going to start with you, Andy. W- what is the key headline here? Is it the 2.41 billion raised in the second quarter, you know, up 8.3%, or is it the 50% drop from last year's 2021 figure? Uh, I'll pick C, none of the above. I, I, I think... Uh you really have to zoom out and take a much longer view on this. Um, You know, 
I don't think many people look at credibility associated with valuation when you've just got other macro and micro things happening across just the broader financial ecosystem globally. So if you zoom out, you know, a decade ago or so when Snapchat was founded, insurtech investment was essentially zero. And we're still talking about huge sums of money coming into the industry across the entire value chain from, you know, balance sheet businesses to MGAs to distribution to infrastructure type companies um, that help the industry grow, scale, drive efficiency. And so I don't think measuring by quarters or sequentially is really super relevant other than to the companies trying to fundraise or the venture firms trying to invest. Um, I think if you zoom out, it's a pretty healthy ecosystem. Um, and certainly there's a lot of money still coming into it, a lot of money out there, given the broader macro uh, situation globally. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we, you know, if, if you look at, um, there was $948 million invested in, in, in total, uh, just in the US alone. I mean, from your perspective, Nikki, I mean, do you think this is a result of what we're going through, you know, Andy talked about kind of the macroeconomics. Do you think this is the cost of living crisis? Do you think this is the pandemic? Do you think this is, is, is the war that's all having a knock-on impact? Or is this just cyclical or something else? I don't think we can blame it on the current economic crisis. This, this slowdown would have occurred during the COVID years. Um, you know, it's certainly not as a result of something that's happened in the last three months or six months. I mean, you know, the organisations that we're talking about are much more future thinking this. I think we're seeing a number of factors come into play. We're seeing some of the really, really, really big unicorn, if you like, insurtech firms still not yet making profit. We're starting to see M&A activity in those areas. We're starting to have if I can say this, cleverer investors. So, you know, as opposed to this being the bandwagon and they're chasing the horses down the street and, you know, the dollars are flying out of bags everywhere. What we've got now are some people who have a better understanding of the whole insurtech scene. Um, and they're starting to look more closely at their investments. So I, I think we've seen a slowdown, but I think that's for possibly two reasons. We're just going to be a little bit more cautious about what we invest in. We're going to understand a little bit more about the market that we're going to go and play in with our money because we need to realise our expectations. And I, I think in my head, that's where I think the slowdown has come from. But heck, it's still a lot of money. And InsurTech is still actually quite a small player in the insurance space if you look at it globally. So, you know, the more money that comes in is great. But I think that as insurtech people and insurtech companies, and Andrew will know this only too well, that the investors are going to start looking for their returns and they're going to start measuring their returns as we move forward, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, look, you're, you're right on. I just think it's the very early innings and everyone wants to point to investments in insurtech, but investments in carriers look like the, you know, that are established and profitable, you know, their valuations have been hit as well globally. And, and you really have the haves and the have nots. And with all the money that's come through the last four or five years, there's a lot of healthy companies with a lot of money on their balance sheets that aren't looking to raise also. So as they, you know, build better businesses and, and improve unit economics and things like that, if you have a lot of money, this is probably not the greatest time to go raise money also. So I think there's just other things at play, really. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, you picked up on it, Nikki, which is, you know, the growth at all cost has been, I think, recently replaced with, you know, value and profitability. Um, and then to your point, Andy, about building businesses, I think, you know, once over, you know, organizations were heavily, re- well, they didn't need to make a profit because they were so reliant on funding. The funding was so great that actually they didn't need to be necessarily profitable. And we've seen that over the years. Um, Benjamin, I'm going to turn to you. I mean, we've had a number of large mega rounds again, which, you know, mega round is looking at the 100 million plus um, investments. So there was six mega rounds of investment, four of which were in the US. Um, Do you think these mega rounds mask issues further down the chain or for other insurers, some of the other smaller players? So we've seen a lot of money flood in, but they tend to be um, dominated by fewer larger players. Do you think that has a knock and impact across, I guess, the insurtech landscape? You saying it make you think it makes it harder, potentially makes it harder for smaller insurtechs to raise funding because all the funding is going to the bigger players. Correct, yeah. I think that kind of assumes that there's a finite amount of investment available for insurtech, which would be the case if you had venture capitalist firms that only invested in surtech and no other type of venture capitalist firms could. But that, of course, isn't the case. So I don't really see that it's a question, you know, there's not a finite, a fixed amount of investment. If there are more good deals out there, venture capitalists or indeed, you know, incumbent insurance companies or others should be investing in them. So it may be that... um, we're seeing a lack of creativity or more likely that some smaller insurtechs are not managing to get their stories out. They're not managing to get in front of um, VCs, that VCs are maybe being a bit narrow-minded in who they're deciding to fund. Or it may be that, you know, to the point you were making, and Andy and Nikki have been making as well, that, you know, as as these sectors become more mature, people are looking for profit. And so some of these early-stage insurtechs are struggling to get funding because there's less appetite for early-stage riskier bets and people are looking for more, or investors are looking for better, maybe slightly safer bets, given the macroeconomic environment. But I don't really feel that one company raising blocks another company from raising. I don't, it doesn't work. No, like no, that. I would agree. I, I would absolutely agree with that. I don't think that a mega deal precludes a whole number of smaller deals. But what we're seeing is a change overall about investors. So if you consider that if you were a tiny, tiny insurtech startup, you might look to get your first round of funding from a crowd cube or a cedars or something of that ilk or private angel investors now when you were only earning 0.01% interest in the bank you know the higher the gamble the bigger the reward so you had high net worth individuals who would seed those very early stages before it moved on to a vc or a pe house and of course that i think that's going to change so Yes, I think really we are talking possibly about the story that smaller insurtechs tell. And and we will all know that there is no school you can go to that tells you how to sell your insurtech idea to a VC. I mean, you've been through funding rounds, Andrew, I'm sure. And, it, and it's painful and it distracts you from the business. And, you know, there isn't a, a, a magic smarty you can swallow that suddenly means that you can explain your business to a VC who's now focusing more closely and more carefully on what they're investing in. It won't stop the money flowing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the only thing I'd add is, you know, focus on the mega round may be a little bit misplaced. Um, The need for a mega round only arises because it's a balance sheet business that needs capital or it's an MGA that's pivoting to take on risk and therefore needs balance sheet capital. 
Um, and so it, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily, I mean, that's just the structure of the business that it needs a hundred plus million dollars because it's putting risk capital um, to work. It needs surplus capital, you know? So I, I think that's probably not the metric to measure health of the industry. Um, obviously there was more mega rounds when the capital was cheaper, right? So, so because why not take more and put more money to work when it was cheaper? But I think looking at the velocity of funding, what types of businesses are getting funded, what the theses are for those businesses that are getting funded is probably a better way to judge health than just pure size when there's just been a lot of changes to the cost of capital. Yeah, and I think I, I think it's a trend that's been happening over the last couple of years. Um, just just looking at that, when you say look at the overall health, one thing that has come out from the report was that the life and health insurance sector appears to be particularly strong. So the second quarter saw 40 life and health insurance deals worth $918 million in total, which was up 12.4%. Um, Nikki, I mean, do you think attitudes have changed towards life and health as a result of the pandemic? Or is there some other reason why that, that one is, is riding high, remaining so strong? I think individuals may have changed their views because of a pandemic. Companies may have changed their views around the effectiveness of their staff, the location of their staff, and so on and so forth. But if you look at the sector as a whole, everybody is concerned about life and health. Not everybody is concerned about auto and home or motor and home. And when you start to move towards tighter economies and, and more people having to budget more carefully actually, we could probably see that swing even further towards life and health, Um, you know, because people view those items as almost mandatory, whereas your home insurance, less so. But I also think that health started further behind general. And so in actual fact, if you were a smart cookie and knew your life and, and health market, you could make greater strides forward faster. You could really drive change into an industry that hasn't seen change of this nature before. Whereas I think in, in certainly motor and home, we've had lots of goes at this over the years. And so actually, it's it's a harder distribution model, certainly in the, certainly in the UK market. And in the US, where you've got state licensing, it's harder to grow to the volumes you need. And I think that that has a play as well. I don't know what Andrew thinks about the US market, but... Yeah, I agree with your points. The only thing I'd add is that in a rising interest rate environment from a zero interest, you know, return environment means that tail businesses are going to perform better. There's a ton more margin in life and health and specialized, you know, uh, products around that than there is in more commoditized products, even if the regulatory environment's the same. So I just think it's more timing and change of the broader you know, view. And again, it, a lot of this is just driven when you have zero interest rates, it's really hard to run and invest in a life business. But, you know, as interest rates go up, obviously, that's a much more favorable investment. No, I couldn't agree more. And we'll come back on to discussing those topics in the second half of the show. I'm going to move us on. Um, so the second story we have is uh, Lloyd's is to end insurance coverage for state cyber attacks. Uh, so this was from the Computer World story. So insurance market Lloyds of London has indicated that will move to require its insurance groups to exclude 
catastrophic nation-state cyber attacks from cyber insurance policies from the 31st of March 2023. So according to the Wall Street Journal, the change will supposedly ensure that the scope of cyber insurance policies is made clear to buyers and is being made because Lloyds believe the impact of state-backed attacks is a systemic risk. The newspaper cited a 16th of August notice written by the underwriter, Tony Chowdhury, and he said, Lloyds remain strongly supportive of cyber insurance, but that such policies need to be appropriately managed given the fast-evolving nature of the threat landscape. Benjamin, I'm going to reach out to you. So, I guess, first of all, how easy is it to prove that these attacks are nation-state, and is it something that's on the rise? It's not at all easy, right? I mean, almost by definition cyber warfare is is hidden, right? I mean, it's not in the open, but you're looking at an environment of sort of asymmetric warfare where nation, certain nation states are deliberately using cyber attacks as a way of undermining other countries. Typically, it's autocracies undermining democracies. Um, it's incredibly difficult to prove because by definition, cyber attackers try to cover their tracks. They use all sorts of techniques to mask their origins. That said, there are certain traces. I'm no expert in cybersecurity, but there are traces and there are ways you can work it out. So I think it's going to be incredibly complicated and difficult. And this is going to create issues for Lloyd's of how do you prove who the attack was from? It's also very clear it's on the on the rise. You know, we've seen, you know, just in the past few years, we've seen interference in, you know, let's take, you know, the the previous US elections, we've had interference in British elections, we've had interference in all sorts of elections all around the world, where certain nation states have had interests in supporting or undermining particular candidates. We've seen exactly the same thing going on in all sorts of areas around not only military technology, but all sorts of other technology, where certain nation states are deliberately supporting attacks or directing attacks on particular companies to acquire certain technologies. Cyber warfare is rife. It's very hard to prove. It's rife. It's happening continually. And yeah, it can't just be on insurance markets to pick up the bill because this is a massive problem. And it's very, very difficult to stop because how do you stop it when you've got countries that sit on the UN Security Council that support this? You're absolutely right. That The big problem from the insurance viewpoint is, first of all, somebody has to declare it a catastrophe. Secondly, somebody has to declare that this catastrophe was caused by a foreign state. So in terms of Lloyd's being able to opt out of paying claims for cyber attacks where it is a catastrophic attack by a foreign state, I, I don't see Andrew's government or my government going on live TV and saying, you know, we have we are declaring a national emergency, we, we are under a, a, a catastrophic attack from a foreign state. And so consequently, the actual wordings in policies that seek to limit this, that's going to be really tough for Lloyd's to do. I, I mean, if you look at the top 10 risks as assessed by insurers, considering the two years we've just had, pandemic still only comes in at number four. Top is cyber. Yeah, Three is national catastrophe. Four is pandemic. And we just lived through one. So I think what we're going to see actually is that it's a nice bold statement of Tony to make. And and I would suggest I probably agree with him. But I think what we're going to see is we're going to see more emphasis from insurers forcing purchasers to take appropriate security steps to have some form of cyber monitoring 
you know, denial of service attacks, etc, etc. And again, I'm no cyber expert. But I think that what we're going to see is we're going to start to see the insurance market seeking to ensure that their customers are taking appropriate steps to prevent that sort of cyber attack. Yeah, and I, look, this is an interesting topic solely because insurance is about matching risk and price to get to an outcome and transferring of risk. I have no idea how anyone is doing this in cyber. And uh, second point associated with that, it appears a lot of really good companies are trying to draw exclusions for different things around the world that, like we just talked about, is very difficult to get to cause. And then you have the third piece associated with this. It's never really been held up in courts around the world in terms of the language, the form language and things like that. And so it's pretty much in its infancy. So you have a growing line where price is going through the roof. As a buyer of cyber insurance, we have no idea if we're gonna be covered on the other side, regardless of the rating of the company, because the definitions are so opaque um, and haven't been tested. And the reality is there's not, you could have as much monitoring and testing and things like that. And if a bad actor, whether it's state sponsored or otherwise, wants to do something in a technology, you know, technology world, it's likely possible that they're going to be, you know, like there, it's likely they're more likely to be successful than not. So it's a it's a really challenging part of the business right now in the in the segment of the industry. I think, and I, and I just wonder. Is it insurers that should take the lead on this? I mean, if you think back to years ago when, um, so for example, in, in cars, vehicles, when airbags are about, in, insurers basically said, you know, we're not going to insure motor vehicles unless you have airbags. And they were the ones that almost drove the regulation, the secu- security controls worldwide in order to push that. Are we in a similar situation with cyber where, actually, to your point, you know, the premiums could get so out of control. Is it that insurers should start mandating these are the controls that you need to place or the, or the minimum standards and we can help you as as risk managers, as risk advisors? I was going to say, yeah, I think the good carriers are trying to mandate here are the different controls, here's the checklist, here's the preconditions on binding your coverage and, 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 and that's fine. I think you're hitting on the right point. Look, there's a there's opportunity for carriers to write good cyber policies that make sense. But on a macro basis, cyber is a cat line that should be, in my opinion, this isn't Snapchat's opinion, approached more like wind or earthquake or flood, that there has to be governmental backstops associated with it. Because I think it's ultimately going to be a cat loss. And if it's a limit loss for every carrier in the industry, they're not going to have the funding to pay out or it's going to be litigated for decades and the people who need the coverage aren't going to get it. So, you know, I, I think that there's a number of really smart people that are running really good companies who have put out a lot of thoughts around this. And at this point, you basically have people dabbling in it and trying to control aggregation. And ultimately, if there's an event, it's probably going to be a cat event and not a one-off event that takes down the industry in this space. And I think that, I mean, we're already seeing insurers start to limit levels or numbers of events 
on uh, ransomware, for example. So recently I had a holiday booked and they were really tardy sending me the tickets and it was just quite annoying, you know. And in, and then about a week before we went, I had an email from the CEO of this particular company, who's an Australian company, who apologised profusely, saying that they had had a cyber attack in March. They had chosen not to pay the ransomware and it had taken them 16 weeks to rebuild their systems. Now, great for him, you know, brave enough to say no to the ransomware, brave enough to face it out and, and tough, it, tough it out with his customers. Um, but we actually have no idea of the global scale of something like ransomware. Now, if you had that state sponsored and that happened to your BTs, I mean, we all saw the TV program and it really was quite frightening. I don't know whether you had that in the US, but we, it was quite frightening. Insurers can't, we can't take that level of loss. But whether a government would declare it a catastrophe so it could be excluded, oh, I think that really unlikely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult. And also, I think what's increasingly difficult is that this isn't just about attacking large companies. I mean, this no. is everybody. This is the large, the small, the medium-sized. And I think that's the real difficulty because what controls do you put in place? I mean, I guess what I've seen certainly from the cyberspace is if anybody was going to look at prevention, it seems to be them that are driving prevention more than being, you know, compensation in any line of or class or line of business that there is. I mean, Benjamin, in your take, does this open it up, I mean, for more innovation or is there more that can be done or are we going down the route of, we just blanket ban it and have to have to get government support. Yeah, I, th I mean, I it, ransomware is a very difficult one because if you start paying out ransoms, you're basically fund you're funding criminality. So you really do need government in intervention because when it becomes a criminal issue, you've got to have governments playing a bigger role. I think government's going to have to play a bigger role here. I also think you've got to have more standards. You know, so there are um, information security standards, ISO uh, two seven zero one, and so on. That's that's the sort of thing where insurance companies need to be saying to all of their clients, you have to put in place these basic protections. Now, obviously, the cyber criminals, um, you know, in these these nation states are super sophisticated. So there are plenty of companies that have put in place those standards and still come under attack. But I think this has got to be a governmental level problem, not an insurance industry problem, because you can't just keep compensating and keep letting you know the, these attackers come and it, you know. I've tried to avoid naming countries, but you know, North Korea is renowned for using uh, ransomware and cyber attack to try and generate revenue. Because guess what? If you impoverish your people, you have no money, right? So when you have got nation states deliberately doing this, other nation states, so the governments of uh, you know Europe, the governments in North America, and so on need to step in. You can't resolve this with insurance. You've got to have put in more protections and more safeguards. Because insurance, compensating people in the event of disaster, you'll just get more of it. Insurance is not the fix here. No, I, I think insurance has a huge part to play, but I agree it has to go wider and beyond this. And sadly, I think an event has to happen that doesn't pay out for the governments to step in versus proactively addressing it ahead of time. And I, ultimately, whether it's one year or 10 years, that's what's going to happen. There'll be a mass... Well, I, I, well, I mean, it could end up that way if, if Lloyds take this approach and then a claim gets raised. It, 
you know, it could end up in lawsuits and lawsuits and litigation ultimately. I, I guess the difference between, you know, if you think about other catastrophe events, you know, I mean, weather and so on, okay, the humans are making those somewhat worse. Um, but you, by comparison, if you just keep paying out on these claims, you're just going to get more and more of them, right? <laughs> you're just, you're feeding the beast. Um, so it is very different. I mean, <laughs> paying out for a climate-related thing doesn't actually encourage more climate change. I mean, at a low level it does. But here, you're feeding the beast. Oh, I think that's a very, very good point to end on. That's the end of uh, topic two. We're going to take a quick break now and we will be back very soon. Hey, folks, the first ever 11FS Awards are coming this November, and we need you, our listeners, to get involved in the nominations. Let us know who you think are the industry game changers, the biggest rule breakers, and the best leaders. Nominate your favorite companies worthy of recognition over 14 different categories right now over at 11FSAwards.com. That's 11FSAwards.com. Get your nominations in before midnight on Monday, 19th of September. Then join us on November 16th to celebrate the best and the brightest in the fintech and financial services industry. Full details on 11fsawards.com. Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. So our next story is from EU Startups, which is that Swiss insurtech startup Grape has picked up 1.7 million euros in funding to reinvent employee insurance. So the Swiss startup Grape has raised uh, 1.7 million euros. Uh, employee insurance is a standard for companies' benefit packages across the world. Uh, many employees anticipate having access to it, yet Great believes this is a market that's ripe for innovation and disruption and that not enough has been done. It's aiming to become a health partner and support overall physical and mental well-being for its customers' employees. The startup is committed to improving services for employees and so directly reinvests into prevention services, supporting the health of their customers' employees through benefits and paid therapy sessions and says it's one of the first insurers to do so. So, it's a we were talking earlier about our small startups getting funding. Well, here's a nice story about a relatively small startup um, getting getting some funding. How much how, how much truth is there in this sort of argument that hey, employer insurance hasn't really been looked at? Nikki, maybe I can come to you first. You were talking earlier about sort of health and and, and life and saying actually that's the big opportunity. Grapes sort of arguing here. Hey, nobody's really reimagined this. Is that true? Is that fair? Um. <laughs> Yes and no. Uh, always, there's never a straight answer, is there? <laughs> but it, but if you look at what a lot of a, a lot of, and they wouldn't even consider themselves insurtech, but a lot of smaller companies, you know, if you you know you wear my watch and you walk a mile and you do this, I'll send you some free nuts and there's all that sort of stuff going on. Um, I, I, I may be underselling that, um, but I think that the market in the UK is probably different to the US. Because I think we give more lip service to health than reality. And in terms of changing the UK market, I think staff do expect more in some sectors from their employers. Whether staff will see this as a benefit, I think the, the big question here um, is about if my employer is going to provide me with well-being isn't that just because they want me back to work sooner? So so the buy-in from an employee may not be as great as I think is perceived, but from an employer's viewpoint, so from Grape's c 
customer's viewpoint, yeah, it's a great thing. You know, I can hold my hands up, you know, I can get my ESG and I can say, do you know what? I provide all of this for my employees. They've got access to therapists. They've got access to this. They've got access to that. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing. And I think probably employee benefits in Europe, I mean, they are much larger than in the UK market. And I think the US is bigger again, isn't it, in terms of the number of employers who, who perceive the benefit from it. Andy, what's your take? Do you think uh, do you think this is attractive to employers that there's a, a proposition that's combining insurance with other types of support for employees? Is, do you think that's relevant and attractive to HR teams? Yeah, I mean, I think the the reality is based on everything we've gone through the last couple of years, um, it's there's there's less separation between work and home. We're all at home today, except for you guys, it looks like, right? <laughs> uh, and so, you know, there's just increases and in study after study around increases of challenges in mental health and addiction and anxiety. And, I, you know, the the work cycle, the news cycle, political cycle globally is basically driving this. So, you know, as a buyer of these types of, of programs, there's definitely a value add. If you can, um, it's not just about having your employees return to work, but if you can provide services to your employees that they can't get everywhere else, that's definitely a great value add. Um, I commend the company for raising money at this time. And, you know, I, I think going to, going to market in a broad category across countries is very challenging. Um, you know, uh, you know, just because of regulatory environment and the selling environment across all of them. But I do think it's a proof point that the ecosystem is really strong and every single component of the insurance can still be disrupted despite hundreds of billions of dollars going into the space in the last 10 years. Um, so I, I wish them well, you know. It's interesting that you mentioned ecosystems because one of the things I thought was very interesting about this story was that they've uh, built apparently 20 integrations into different HR tools. And John, I was thinking about, you know, what we were talking about earlier about embedded insurance. Do you see this as an embedded insurance play? Do you think, is, is that smart that they're trying to go through, potentially going to market through HR tools? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think it's very smart. Um, I think... <laughs> You know, if, if, if you're going into a business and have daily interactions, I mean, I, I look at people like Ulife in, in the UK who've been incredibly successful. They've done two things. They've gone business to business so that they might have integrated into HR. But what it does is they've managed to not only go business to business, but they've also reached out to the employee by providing apps, by providing that daily engagement. I, I, you know, I can't remember. I think they have employees engaging with it three, four times a day, or maybe it was three, four times a week. And I think what they've managed to do is actually gamify uh, the, the experience and with rewards. So they've gone beyond just trying to sell you an insurance policy. And we were talking about embedded. One of the things about embedded is uh, the beauty is if you can start getting that daily interaction and that data sharing, it takes it from just being a bolt-on to something that is engulfed within their lifestyle. So I think one, yes, it's very clever going into the HR systems and we've seen it with accounting systems and accounting packages and looking at that. So I think it's the next step of most insurance is how do you combine with where people are using things on a daily basis? Does this, does, it, does a company like Grape end up serving a, fund, a sort of fundamentally different set of, of, of customers? Because, you know, they, they're sort of talking about competing with the big giants and saying the big established business, you know, insurance companies aren't really addressing this market and the needs of our customers. 
Nikki, do you think a group ends up just basically appealing to a different set of companies rather than the big traditional enterprises? Uh, quite possibly, but small companies become big companies, so Grape will inevitably end up servicing much bigger companies. I think the challenge for Grape is to is to try and engage with the end customer. Thus, the end customer seeks to continue their relationship with Grape regardless of their employer. And so it becomes something that's part of the package that they want when they look for work. And if you then considered great moving cross vertical, if they can truly build that relationship with the end customer, whether that's through app or through activity or you know, gamification, if you like. I mean, we've talked about gamification quite a lot in the motor market in the UK. You know, how do we make buying insurance exciting, sexy, fun, you know? Um, and if they can crack that, because it's not exciting, sexy or fun, <laughs> um, but if you can crack that end consumer interaction, then that gives them access to the other verticals. What would stop them selling auto insurance through the employer market? Because they've got the they've got the interaction with the purchaser at, at the right set. So I think again, yet again, it is going to come down to distribution. If you look at what was provided in the past to what was provided today, I think. Where companies like Ulife have been incredibly successful is, and you made the point, Andy, earlier with regards to, you know, that the pandemic has changed where we work, how we work. And you could argue that, you know, there was the great resignation or mass resignation and, you know, that's happened over the last couple of years. And people want different things, I think, from they want flexibility in work. They want different health and life benefits. People have started to view things incredibly differently. And I think if you go with just one offering potentially like some of the incumbents, I don't know exactly what they offer, but then you're, you're not appealing to your customer base. I, I think people now see employee benefits as going beyond just health. You know, it's, it's well-being, it's financial, it's mental, it's social, it's physical, it's career. You know, if you've got companies that can provide all of that in, in a holistic manner, and then to your point, Nikki, you get engagement with it on an irregular basis. And, you, and the whole prevention, you start promoting better mental health better lifestyle activities, you're putting insurance into a completely different place, which is, I guess, where like motor and telematics we're trying to do um, and, and vitality have been so successful. So I think there's a huge opportunity here. And if, if they move fast, then yes. Andy, what do you think of this? Do you think there's sort of mileage in what Nikki was saying of, of you get the, the employees start associating with the brand of the insurer and then when they move to another employer they start saying hey well, why don't we have grape or you life or whoever it is i mean is that a, is that a viable marketing strategy i don't know uh, look i don't know I, I do not know the european markets in this space that, that they're that they're going after one thing i'd say is an early stage company that makes an announcement raises money and starts in point a <laughs> likely is going to pivot a couple times if they're going to be successful um, and I honestly, that's the make of the best entrepreneurs is they start with one idea and if it works great, but if it doesn't work, figure out what did work and switch. So, you know, I, I don't think I'm, I can judge or, or game that. I, I would say that B2B is incredibly hard. B2B to C is even harder in this space. And so um, cost of acquisition is really critical. And Nikki's point about it just depends on the distribution is probably way more important than the product at, the, at this stage, uh, certainly to get product market fit. 
Indeed. But they do have an edible name, grape, you know, and there's a good pedigree of you know, <laughs> apple, <laughs> lemonade, you know. So, so speaking of edible insurtex, our next story is about lemonade, uh, which has closed its acquisition of Metromile and then promptly laid off 20% of its staff, which was reported by TechCrunch and various others. So publicly traded lemonade uh, laid off about 60 employees of Metromile, the auto insurtech uh, company it recently acquired. A Lemonade spokesman told TechCrunch that it was able to offer a role at Lemonade to about 80% of the Metromile team, but the deal was synergistic. Metromile itself went public via a special purpose acquisition company, or SPAC, in February 2021 with a valuation of over a billion dollars. Lemonade announced on July the 28th that it had closed on its purchase of Metromile, noting that in return for under $145 million in stock, Lemonade receives over $155 million in cash, over $110 million in car premiums, an insurance entity with 49 state licenses, and precision data from 500 million car trips. Founded in 2011, Metromile had launched its personalised pay-per-mile auto insurance a year later, 2012, and was one of the first companies to apply that model, and frankly, you know, one, one of the earliest insurtechs. So where do we start with this? Um, laying off 20% of employees on sort of day one of the acquisition. Andy, what do you think? How does it, is, that, is that smart because you deal with the pain straight away? Or is that just a terrible way to say hi to a bunch of new employees? Look, this is a stupid headline. Uh, this is completely unfair to both companies talking about the layoffs. I think you hit it right out of the beginning. Metro Mile was it literally invented a category and was super innovative and still is super innovative. Lemonade's built a fantastic brand. They buy the company, they're going into car. I mean, there's more emphasis given to the layoffs. I feel horrible for the people on both sides of this because the reality is at the same time, we've got some of the biggest insurance carriers in the world and some of the biggest companies in the world are laying off thousands and thousands of people. And, and, and I don't want to minimize the numbers, but 20% reduction after a acquisition is, I would say, largely nothing. And in, in the end, of yeah. the, I mean, you look at all the acquisitions and in insurance of any company get bought by carrier, another carrier, a strategic, I mean, we're talking 50% redundancies. They call them redundancies. They talk about synergies of cost takeout. It's in the hundreds of millions of dollars and we don't say anything, but then two insure techs do it. And everyone wants to dunk on the lemonade team for, you know, I don't know, somehow being insensitive to the Metro Mile team that they acquired. So I, I just, I think it's unfortunate that this is the headline. I think the thing that's really exciting is that you have two companies coming together to build a new auto product, which means there's choice for consumers um, out there, whether they'll be successful is what the conversation should be, whether the time is the right time to go into car insurance um, is that a good market to go into or not? Whether the way they're approaching it is good or not, you know, how they integrate, you know, paper mile versus telematics versus, you know, whether credit scoring can be used five years from now are good topics. I, I just think it's, um, this is the, how businesses evolve and the headline being, you know, uh, a layoff is, I just, I think it's not fair to either company or the people who work there. 
can it's I my deep, deep defense of the limited Metro Mile? <laughs> no, no, I, I was just going to, I mean, it's a really interesting point. I mean, Nikki, I was going to ask you a quick question. I mean, do you think InsureTech's, especially, you know, they've had all the great press whilst the boom years were happening and InsureTech's now are getting a bit of a, a pasting. Do you think this is just they're getting worse press than they deserve or because the operating ratios are bad, because of other things. Is it justified, I guess, the bad press? Or is it, are they just attracting a bit of a bit of a storm? They attract a bit of a storm because they still categorise themselves as insurtech. So we have to understand where does insurtech stop and it just becomes insurance. So I know we, we, we say Lemonade is insurtech and we say Metro Mile is insurtech, but at what point do they stop being insurtech? At what point do they become establishment? Because, I mean, I agree with Andrew, you know, only 20% loss of staff, dreadfully sad for the, the individuals affected. But I don't need two HR directors and I don't need two management accountants and I don't need two of this and two of that. You know, and I suspect if they had evaluated the story correctly, you would see that the people that did the rating and the, the data science and so on, they're all still in place at Metro Mile. I mean, the really big story out of this is the fact that Lemonade get distribution. You know, and I know I always bang on about distribution, but frankly, if you don't have distribution, you're never going to make money. And I think Lemonade were licensed in three or four states, and um, Metro Mile were in all the states, were they? 49, all the yeah, all but one, yeah. yeah. Yeah, all but one, which is Hawaii, I'm assuming, um, but <laughs> whichever. Um, so I think I think it's slightly unfair that they get the press on, on the layoffs. I think the bigger story is around Metro Mile's valuation, because that starts starts us looking at how things were valued two, three, four, five years ago and what in reality that means when they actually come up for sale. So I think that's a more interesting story. Um, and I think what it does for Lemonade's future plans in terms of access to a wider distribution network, I think those are the, those are the exciting things to talk about, albeit very sorry for the individuals concerned, but I don't think it was any surprise to most of us in this space or most of us who run businesses. Yeah. No. Can, can I just go back to your, like, I think that the, I'll call it the, the insurance media and insurance players is absolutely painting with the biggest, dumbest brush across uh, insure tech right now in terms of, you know, the, every headline, every headline is among insure tech woes. It's like, this business is doing really good among insure tech woes, or well, wait a minute, like it's, it's, you know, and, you know, and, and this isn't like incumbents versus insure tech or, you know, any, any of this, like all insurance companies are tech companies. They have been for a hundred years, right? I mean, the, the first companies really use data. So let's not, it, it's not around that. I just think that I, I, I do not see the same level of scrutiny when a hundred year old carrier that's publicly traded puts up 120 combined ratio for the first time in 10 years. And we're like, oh, this four-year-old company that's growing really fast has a really bad loss ratio. We didn't say Uber and Lyft changed our lives in terms of how we get around the world in a lot of ways. They used venture-backed money to fuel that to get us all addicted to taking Ubers and Lyft, put the taxi and delivery industries out of business. And now they're raising their pricing and their unit economics look really good, right? So we didn't get mad that they used venture-backed money to go prove a business model. So why are we like, I don't think anyone at any of the insure techs that's, you know, taking risk, you know, said that they have perfect pricing on day one and that their perfect risk selection on day one 
They're using venture back money to build a base and we'll see if they're successful. And it's like the second inning of a nine inning game, um, for, you know, first period, right? Like, so, you know, so like, why, why are we really painting with this wide brush when it's only the valuations that have gone down, right? These businesses have improved, pick any company, private or public, the businesses have actually improved both on growth based on how they're managing expense and all of the technology products offerings, you know, breadth. So I, I think we're being real too, a little too quick and we're saying all companies are equal and they're all bad and we should make fun of them. And reality is it's really early and I think that's a mistake. So, so let's come back to the deal then. John, this looks like a pretty good deal for Lemonade in many ways, right? So they've picked up 49 state licenses, as, as, as Nikki points out. Uh, they've acquired a bunch of cash. They've acquired a bunch of smart people. They've acquired some established car insurance products. Okay, they've got to maybe merge those. This is a pretty good deal for Lemonade, isn't it? Uh, I think it's a fantastic deal for Lemonade. Uh, you know, it, Lemonade, I guess, were the, the poster child for InsurTech. They've got a phenomenal brand. They've got, you know, with our Pulse platform here, we, you know, we, we've got customer journeys and we regularly cite Lemonade as having one of the best onboarding journeys there is. And, you know, and so if you can take that learnings and apply it, and to be honest, I, I, Metromile probably had some great stuff as well, but if you can take everything that Lemonade's done really well with the behavioral science, you know, the, the charity givebacks, and you can apply it to Metromile. And I think the bit that for me is really interesting is it's not just the 49 states, it's now you've got access to 500 million car trips. So I know we talked about kind of the operating ratio and, you know, it's bad, it's 150 for Lemonade and stuff, but if they've got all this data now, it'd be really interesting over the next couple of years to say, and you start with Lemonade Car. Actually, if Lemonade Car comes in and starts doing a fantastic operating ratio because they've got the data, then actually, do they have the whole model right? They've, they've got the brand, they've got the customer experience, now we've backed by the data, you know, they could really, really fly. You're right. It's going to really help them with their pricing, mm. isn't it? Getting that well, data. and the fact remains that volume helps with pricing. You mm. know, if I only insure two people and one of them has a claim, oops. If I insure, you know, 20 million people <laughs> and, you know, it, it, you know, my risk is reduced, my, my, you know, as long as I'm controlling my cost and, and, you know, fulfilling my regulatory needs, you know, as you grow, it's supposed to get better. Okay, John, I think it's back to you for and finally. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'll be honest, I don't have as good a segue as your, as your lemonade uh, and, and fruits and vegetables. That was probably the best segue I've ever had. Um, but and finally, so all right now, it's time for the final story of the week. Uh, this one could be controversial. Um, cyclists could be made to have registration plates and insurance. Uh, we've got no Nigel Walsh here today, so maybe it'll be a little less tempered. So the Guardian said, uh, bikes could be made to have registration plates and insurance as ministers weigh up bringing speed limits for cyclists in line with those of drivers. The government is also considering the possibility of cyclists receiving license penalty points and fines if they break speed limits or run red lights. It comes as the Transport Secretary Grant Chaps proposed a Whitehall review of how cyclists who flout the law can be tracked down by police. Uh, mandatory insurance for cyclists is also on the table, with Shapps keen uh, to set up a review despite the fact that he may no longer be in his role when the new UK Prime Minister is elected. I mean, fantastic topic. I'm going to start with you, Nikki. I don't know if you're a fan of cyclists or not, but... Um, I, I, I mean, I'm going to apologise to Nigel right now. Yes, they should be insured. Yes, they should be licensed. Yes, they should be fined for going through red lights. Um, you know, I think I think the issue is, is that we have a minority and it will be a minority of cyclists, but it's the same with car drivers or motorbike riders or anything else. 
we have 20 mile an hour limits in our town centres. And I'm pretty sure even I can cycle at 20 miles an hour. Well, maybe not. But Nigel certainly could. But I think we've got to the stage and it's and it's not just about cycles. Let's, let, you know, let's, you know, open open the bag. We, our pavements are now full of cyclists and e-scooters and stuff that's moving faster than pedestrians. And there's no mandatory insurance on any of these. It is true that responsible cyclists tend to take out cycling insurance, particularly if they're those that go out on cycle road trips. But yeah, the time has come. The time has come that we cannot run the risk of our elderly on pavements being mowed down by whether it's a cyclist or an e-scooter or a Segway. You know, and if we're going to open it up, let's open it up. You know, if if we think about green and climate change and everything else, cycling, e-scooting, Segwaying, they're all better than driving your car the half a mile to the shop. So let's get real. Let's have a proper debate and let's figure out how we can do this and protect the poor people wandering around the pavements. I just can't help on this topic thinking about, you know, registering my 10 and eight year old for insurance on their bicycle and how that works. So like, I mean, I I just, I don't, I don't understand the topic Uh, and maybe it's because of being a stupid American, you know. (laughs) No, not at all. Just pop over to London anytime, Andrew, (laughs) and then try and cross a road. (laughs) I mean, you you raise a fantastic point, Andy. Like what's the definition of a cyclist? What's, you know, how do you assess the risk? How do you price the risk? You know, how, are people really going to pay? It's a whole lot easier to buy a bike than buy insurance for a bike. I just, I, I just think there's so many structural things here. I think you go more towards the, uh, you know, like you said, ticketing points, et cetera, for bad behavior versus, you know, punishing the seven-year-olds riding their bike in the parking lot. I, I completely agree with you, Andy, and I, I disagree with with you with you, Nikki, on this one. I think I think this is going way too far, and I think I think I think what you, the point you were making, Nikki, you were mi- you were mixing motorized things like sco- you know powered scooters with bicycles, and I do I get that there are some cycle cu- cycle couriers in London who go like crazy, and that they exist in some other big cities too, and that is a problem. There are some laws that that can be used against them. I think getting ordinary cyclists to register um, and buy insurance is way too far. You look at you know other, other European countries like the Netherlands, Germany, etc., Sweden, vast numbers of people cycle around safely every day. Yes, there's a small minority of idiots who cycle too fast, sometimes actually because they're being put under pressure by their employers to deliver packages or whatever. Let's go to the root of that problem and not impose a huge amount of costs on millions of other people, including Andy's children. I'm guessing you've got some. I think you said you've got children, right? This is this is a ridiculous policy um, being put forward by a politician seeking um, seeking attention. So, Well, the one, the one thing I'd add, though, I'll take the other side is what a great embedded insurance opportunity for every new bicycle to be sold with the policy. Like, I mean, that would be, uh, maybe that would be a good business. I don't know. I guess the hardest, I mean, whether you went down the insurance route or just the registration route, it, I think that's the hard thing is, to your point, it's a minority. I looked up, it was, there was five pedestrian deaths caused by cyclists in 2019. In That's which country? Quite a lot. In, in, in the UK. It's just in the UK. In the UK. So, you know, grief, tragedy, hurt, it's, it's, the, it's the same irrespective of the vehicle, whether it's a motorized vehicle versus, you know. So I, I get the argument that you should look at it the same. And I know they're looking at changing uh, the laws in terms of you can prosecute because there's limits in terms of at the moment. It's, I think it's two point, um, 
mandatory two years in jail, or maximum two years in jail. So I think they're going to try and change it. The hardest thing with all of this, and I'm a cyclist, I cycle everywhere in London. Um, I, I once actually got fined for running a red light. So, so there we did, go. They so, did do its job, and I've not done it since. Existing laws work. The, the well, well, is, well, only if you have a policeman on that corner. Well, exactly. He doesn't I, have a registration number, so we can't take his photograph. I mean, registration maybe is a, you know a stretch too far because I, you know, I'm sure there are issues with the dangerous positioning of number plates on bicycles and so on. But insurance, you know, really. You know, and and with respect to to Andrew's children, I'm sure they're very safe and they're scootling along on their on their little bikes, but they could be zooming around running a granny over, and I'm going to rely on the fact that you have proper home insurance that gives you some liability coverage for that type of event. Now, even if we only said that's important, so maybe it's like a dog license. You know, you pay a one pound fifty fee a year, and that gets you some mandatory liability insurance. It doesn't have to be complex, does it? It can be. It can be straightforward. You know, you pay a £10 fee and you get your liability insurance covered as well. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you, Nicky. I, 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 if we start going down the route of, yeah, I just think of the, the cost of trying to police this thing and govern this thing, it'd be astronomical. Um, also, to your point, Andy, about, you know, how do you classify it? What's a cyclist? You know, do you start looking at... You know, those who are commuting versus those who are recreation. You know, God, there's so many different ways you could take this. But I think, Nikki, to your point, you know, maybe there is some very, very simple route rather than the heavy-handed common government approach in what's in terms of what they're looking at. I, I also think we should draw a line between motorized vehicles or powered vehicles and unpowered vehicles. I think that's quite an important distinction. Um, I think there's existing laws. And frankly, I think there's a lot of countries that have got bigger problems than this to, to fix. Um, so, you know, if you're going to spend government time sorting out problems, I'd put this quite low down. I mean, five people being killed is bad, but there are a lot of other things that are causing worse harm. It's an interesting one, the, the motorized versus non-motorized, because in I know, I know e-scooters. I'm not even sure if they're legal yet. And yet there seem they're to be many millions of them all over the place. Um, yeah, so, so that's what the transport minister, that's what Grant Shapps should actually be doing, is fixing that. But, but, but the, I guess that they're similar in the sense of... It's a definition of where they're used and yes, what rules yeah. of the road they are governed by. So, for example, a cyclist cannot be prosecuted for speeding. Yeah. It can't be prosecuted for speeding because it's, there's no law in situation. And cyclists can go faster than the speed limit in some of our urban areas now. And a cyclist can be prosecuted. I suspect you weren't prosecuted for jumping a red light. You were prosecuted for careless riding or something. But but we need a set of distinct rules that cyclists... And cyclists need to understand what those rules are, abide by them. But I think the whole motorised versus manually powered... Actually, kids on skateboards are just as much of a liability on pavements. So we've got to get to grips with what we think our transport of the future will look like, particularly in our urban areas. You know, are we creating cycle lanes that are good for cycles, e-scooters, skateboarders, rollerbladers? You know, I don't care. You're moving faster than a pensioner on a pavement. You know, is that where we should be drawing the line? And you're right. Maybe the government should be thinking about that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> I think that was very well said. I guess final thought, Andy, is this something that could ever happen in the US? Just to, just to close this one out. Look, I'm, I'm definitely not the person that should judge what could or couldn't happen in the US. Like, I would say anything's <laughs> possible anywhere at this day and age. Mm. So I'll leave it at that.
<laughs> Very good. Well, that wraps up today's conversation. I'd like to say thank you very much to everyone. So where, firstly, where can our listeners find out more about you, uh, Nikki? LinkedIn's always best. Andy, how about yourself? Uh, Snapsheetclaims.com or LinkedIn. Um, and thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Nice meeting you all. And uh, finally, Benjamin? Uh, Benjamin Ensor on LinkedIn or 11fs.com. Fantastic. And you can find me also on LinkedIn, John Bean, or via 11fs.com as well. So a big thank you to all our guests. Uh, thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make us better and helps others find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11fs or InsureTech Insider. Or you can find us on Twitter at InsTechInsiders or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Great show. Thank you very much and look forward to seeing you next time. Goodbye.